G'day, I'm Oli Laleve and welcome to GRDC In Conversation. We'd first like to acknowledge the traditional lands on which this podcast is produced. We've travelled to and spoken to people all across the country for this series. We'd like to pay our utmost respects to First Nations Australians who've told stories on this land for thousands of years and for hundreds of generations. This series is a GRDC investment that takes you behind the scenes as we sit down with some of the people shaping our grain industry, uncovering their journey, learning more about their passions and the projects that are part of their everyday. We're covering Southern Australia's grain-growing regions, chatting with researchers, advisors, growers, advocates, and just about everyone in between. So, let's get into it. Terry Enrod is the Chair of Grains Australia Limited. You were recently awarded the Grains Research and Development Corporation's Seed of Gold Award in Perth. I'm really interested. You're a former Great Southern Grain Grower, now living in Geraldton and livestock producer. You're joining me today as part of the GRDC In Conversations podcast. And I think, Terry, over the next hour or so, maybe slightly less, we're going to hear a little bit of your story. How are you, though? Yeah, very well. Thanks, Ollie. Yeah, look, uh, good to talk to you. As I was reading your bio and the announcement, firstly, the Seeds of Gold Award, what's it like to be recognised by the grains industry? Oh, look, it was a very prestigious award and uh, quite unexpected. Um, you know, you do what you do and um, it's not an award, GRDC award very often, so it was prestigious in that effect. And I was quite overwhelmed, actually, the uh, some of the um, reaction to it. You know, it was picked up by the press quite widely uh, and a lot of people noted it. So it was um, quite a, a nice experience in that way. And certainly, I think, to be recognised by, by your peers in the industry who you've worked with and that sort of thing, yeah, it's, it's nice to be recognised by those who you've worked with who, I guess, appreciate in some way um, some of the things that I've been involved in and, uh, and helped drive over the years. Yeah, interesting time. I think we'll, we'll probably uncover it as we chat, but I'd love to know, like today, looking back on the career you've had in agriculture, what is it that's still making you passionate about the agriculture sector here in Australia? Well, I think, um, well, if you go back, I mean, I started farming in the 70s. Um, after high school in Perth, I returned to the farm. We were farming um, in Mount Barker, West Australia. And so I started there. We had a new land block. A lot of countries being developed then as um, east of Albany. So I spent 10 years there helping develop that property. And that, uh, that's where it all started, I suppose. But I mean, that wasn't unusual. Lots of people were doing exactly the same thing as I was. But I think, yes, that's where my passion for agriculture developed. But as we developed that, there was always challenges. I mean, at that time, the wool industry was uh, at a pretty low ebb. I mean, collapse in prices in the early 70s. So uh, most of the farming areas at that time were sort of mixed operations of both grain and livestock, and we were the same. So we're always looking for opportunities to uh, make the whole system work. And I think that's a feature of agriculture across Australia, that wherever area you were in, there's systems there that work in some places and different to others. But in that system, it was a grain livestock enterprise. So that's where I started in the early days. Collective organisations like rural youth organisations were involved in like-minded people all looking for opportunities and trying to make the whole system work. So that's where it started, I suppose. And um, I liked agriculture and wanted to make a success of it. And I think in those early days too, I think uh, sort of started to get some appreciation of the role of research, which could deliver some of those things we were trying to overcome. So I think that's really the start of it, Ollie. So in those early days, was your country predominantly livestock and then it made a transition into grain growing? Well, we're always doing both. It was a matter of emphasis over the years. It certainly developed into, into more grain operations over a 20-year period, but um, it, it, livestock still remained pretty much part of our operation. Um, and over time, cropping became more um, more important as, as we developed, uh, well, new crops became available, uh, new techniques of how to grow them. So moved from there, and I guess I had a 
stronger interest, I suppose, in uh, in grains research from that point of view. Can you share a little bit more? I've only ever been to Albany once. I've seen that incredible coastline that you've got, but that great southern region of Western Australia, what would you say it's famous for and how would you describe it to people who may not be familiar with it? Uh, well, well, it's a Mediterranean climate, so it's dominated by winter rainfall, hot, dry summers. There is some summer rainfall, but it's not reliable and it's unseasonal in that respect. So a true uh, dry land agriculture, if you like, which lends itself to both livestock and crop production, winter crop production, rainfall, fed by rainfall, of course. And as you, as you move closer to the coast, of course, the uh, livestock industries dominate in the, in the higher rainfall areas. You know, it was previously a pretty strong dairy area. And if you move west of Albany, of course, it gets into the timber industry country. So it moves quite quickly from um, high rainfall on the coast to more dry land agriculture as you move east of there. So reasonably reliable country uh, in terms of rainfall, but fairly light soils. So it's uh, duplex type soils. They have to be managed quite carefully in the early days when clearing was involved. We had to plough it up to get rid of the mallet roots, etc. You know, wind drift was an issue. Establishment of crops um, was sometimes difficult because of windblown problems. They are the sort of all the things that have been overcome over the time, particularly with the changing farming systems and one-pass seeding operations now, etc. So that's it. Uh, the Port of Albany is uh, a dominant grain shipping port out of Albany. So that was a sort of regional centre for that sort of great southern area, serviced by road road and rail into the port. And so a very important question coming from that part of Western Australia, who would you say your footy team is? My footy team? Yeah. Oh, West Coast Eagles, of course. It's a, always an important question, I think. Yeah, particularly for somebody in Geelong, yeah. <laughs> we won't talk about current form, but we'll come back. It's uh, the, the name on the trophy from 2022 is important. <laughs> <laughs> now, your family has a really interesting and rich history of farming originally from south australia then moving to western australia in the early 1900s but it wasn't always just in grain and livestock there were some other crops so can you share a little bit more about i guess that family history of farming in western australia my uh, great-grandfather moved from elliston on the west coast of south australia after the rabbits sort of ate the place out arrived in uh, mount barker about 1901 or two and they went into apple farming because um well, orcharding uh, mount barker was a dominant orchard area then so they went into to apples and apples was a very profitable enterprise in those days so they established that both my great-grandfather established it, my grandfather went on it and then uh, latterly in my father's time they moved further east of Mount Barker into the sort of dry cropping areas you know, away from orcharding and started to develop uh, broadacre farming in that area and then we moved further east after that so that was where the family started and I mean in those days you know, I often said to my father, you know, why didn't you go out there and take up 10,000 acres when you had the opportunity? And the reason was that apple farming then was so profitable, nobody could see the point. You know, it was, uh, but, you know, latterly that, that industry disappeared altogether when the UK joined the, well, what's that in the common market? Because they're all exported through the Port of Albany. Um, so that industry virtually disappeared. And, uh, you know, a lot of those areas since then became very important wine-growing areas. So there's a lot of vineyards in that great southern area now which uh, occupy land previously held by orchards. So we've seen that transition in certainly in my lifetime. And I suppose the other second transition in that period was the establishment of blue gum plantations, growing blue gums for wood chip production, which happened to the uh, 1980s, 90s. And that occupied a lot of land that was previously cleared for farming, mostly uh, not so much farming, but more in the, in the higher rainfall areas of some more livestock production area. And that all went into uh, blue gum plantations, which 
became a um, an important industry in that area, shipping through Albany, and I had quite a bit to do with that industry as chairman of the Port Authority for a number of years uh, when we established that export facility. So it's been big, big transitions, and then the yeah, the more uh, dryland farming systems that you know certainly crop production has expanded exponentially in in that area and and replaced livestock to a large degree. With your family business, so when you came back in in the seventies, you were working alongside your old man and, and parents, were you? Yes, we're in a family partnership with my um, uh, parents and brother, and we we maintained that for a number of years until uh, nineteen eighty six. My wife and I uh, separated from the partnership and ran our own business for the next twenty or thirty years after that, and um, we remained quite close in, in, in family connections, but we just farmed separately. We bought another couple of properties in that time, so we were a viable unit on our own weight. So we did that for the next number of years, from 86 till 2012, I suppose, yeah, or 18 when I sold the property. So you've now moved on. You no longer have the connections to the farming piece down that southern area? No, I didn't. I made the decision uh, when we did that. I leased the farm for, um, I sold part of it. I leased the other half for um, five years. And after that, made a decision that uh, I weren't going back farming. I was settled now in Geraldton and uh, doing a number of other industry-related non-executive director position. So um, I decided to uh, to sell it. So I've got, I've got no physical connection with farming anymore, but I, um, I've maintained over the last 10 years uh, quite an involvement in an organisation such as AGIC, now Grains Australia Limited, and the Livestock Export Corporation, which I was a member of. I certainly haven't been sitting around looking for something to do, put it that way. Do you miss it? Uh, yeah, I miss the challenge of it. I mean, anybody who's farming, I think, and enjoys it, yeah, you do miss it, but you know, you you get to a point in your life where you've we've done it for forty odd years, and you say, well, do I keep doing this? I mean, we had daughters who weren't going farming or didn't want to go farming, so it finished up just me and my wife uh, farming there. And I said, well, you know, we can keep doing this for another twenty years, or we can stop doing it. So, so I miss it in that respect, but everything has a time, I think. Yeah, so I've got no regrets. No, that's perfect. I, I want to ask you about throughout your, I'll say, your farming career. You also had these. It's real involvement outside the farm gate, whether it was, as you said, kind of through the, the Albany Port Authority or whatnot. But how did how did the roles outside the farm gate benefit you with the farming business? Um, yeah, well, I guess there's benefits. I mean, you, I mean, you certainly get a broad understanding of a whole lot of issues that you probably wouldn't have come across if you were just just farming on alone. Um, I and mean, you can absorb quite a lot of information. There's lots of ways of doing that. But I, I think it benefited me in uh, in understanding the, the role that the organisation I was involved in, how they could influence agriculture. And I think that's what motivated me to be involved. I mean, there's probably some downsides to it. I mean, I think, you know, the amount of time I spent off farm when I was farming, uh, doing these things, I think I probably lost a few opportunities here and there just for physically not being on the job. But, you know, they, you know everybody makes the decisions and, and you know, it's, it's voluntary to do what you do. So I'm not complaining about that, but that's just what, what it is. But I think it, in terms of direct benefit to the farm, it's hard to really crystallise that. I think understanding the roles that the organisation I was involved in, particularly GRDC, AGIC, Port, and those live corp. I've always had this view, and I guess it's probably influenced from my father to a degree. You know, he always said, uh, and he's still here today. You know, people say, "Well, they should do something." He always said to me, "Well, just remember, son, that we are they. If you're going to get involved in these things, you, you need to um, play a part if you can." So I did that, and, and that developed slowly over a number of years, of course. The things I did, I thought I thought they were worth doing, put it that way. I didn't do them just for the fun of it. I just thought they were a worthwhile exercise to uh, participate in these things. And um... It's an interesting one, isn't it? Because like, I think even like in my role, where, where you can go and get involved in these 
other activities. Did you did they ebb and flow throughout your farming career as you decided I'll oh, pick up more and then at times maybe let a few of them go? Or were you pretty consistent the whole way through? Yeah, fairly consistent, I think. One thing led to another, if you like. <laughs> I mean, one of the first first things I I was involved in really, and and that was a local level, we were looking at issues was, you know, there was an organization, Wysol, Squiddity didn't set the sole affected land treatment society. It was quite controversial because they were looking at challenging some of the wisdom about how to manage salt land, which is a big issue in West Australia. So I was involved in that without going into all the details, but I think it was just symptomatic that we were looking for answers for problems, I suppose. So I got involved in that later on through the Farmers Federation in the Research and Review Committee uh, and encouraged by the chairman of that Coarse Grains Committee at the time, Gavin Drew, to, to get involved in um, in research, which I took a role on the uh, Bali, State Bali Committee initially. Three years later, GRDC was formed and I joined the first panel there. So so these sort of things, yeah, they're incremental, I suppose, as you, as, you, as you move through them, and some of them overlapped. I mean, when I was appointed to the minister, appointed me to the um, Albany Port Authority in 89, I mean, the interest there was, I mean, we, as a primarily grain shipping port, as an industry, locally, we were concerned of the direction that some of the port was taking in terms of costs and arrangements. So the interest was there and I was successfully put on the board there, which I stayed and eventually chaired it for 10 years. So, and at the same time, I was involved in those other things. So not too much dropped off, Ollie, um, sort of just grew, really. Once you're involved in some things, other things usually follow you. You're a busy man, Terry. Yeah, it was a busy period. Um, so my wife is also involved in industry activities as well. So between us, we were pretty busy through the 80s and 90s. I had most things covered. <laughs> <laughs> it's been very interesting. I mean... Um, I'd love to know the side of things. So for more than 40 years, I guess, on the farm management side, but now also like a considerable chunk of your career on on various boards and committees. The opportunity to get like involved in the research, did that just eventuate? Or what I'd love to know, and maybe for the listeners of it, like what were some of the stepping stones you went through and how did those opportunities, I guess, evolve? Well, they evolved, evolved for me. All of these things were done by selection committee. So when the State Barley Committee called for nominees to um, to sit on that committee, I put my hand up and uh, went through a selection process and finished up on it. Three years later, the GRDC was formed. So the GRDC amalgamated all those state committees and federal councils. So about 16 organisations came together. So again, renominated through a selection committee and, and was successful under the first Western panel. And the panels were quite important in the development of GRDC because they were the sort of interface between the growers and the GRDC. So that's how it started, Ollie, uh, through that process. And then um, in the influx of time, as the GRDC developed and put together other structures and that, obviously I eventually finished up on the board and, and, and then chair of it. So, but I mean, that's, that's just by, by being involved in it and, and uh, making yourself available. But, but as I've said, I mean, all, all these things were a result of other people having a lot of faith in me, I suppose, because uh, a lot of them are ministerial appointments or selection committee appointments or and appointments by, by my peers. So. You know, people obviously entrusted me with some of that thing and, and taking on those responsibilities. I always felt that if I'd been given the responsibility, I'd just do the best job I could. Did you feel out of your depth at all? Um, yeah, initially I did. When I, when I first started, I mean, you, you don't come in there with the full knowledge, that's for sure. I mean, um, when I joined the port board, I was I knew very little about ports, obviously, but I learned over a period of time when I joined the, the GRDC panel and I was sitting there with, with a couple of very experienced scientists and other people who uh, knew a hell of a lot more than I did. Yeah, and I, and I certainly um, felt I'm adept in terms of knowledge, but I felt I could I could learn if I applied myself. You don't have to know all the details, but you know have to work how governance works and, um, and did a bit of training 
in company directorships and that sort of thing to upskill yourself on how you should be operating as a director. It can be pretty interesting, can't it, when you start to look under the hood? <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's uh, Yeah, I mean, you've always got to be conscious. You're working with other people, and I think that's the thing that, that I learned through this whole process and has been quite critical is that, yeah, you're asking me what I'm doing and I'm talking about it. It sounds very uh, self-deprecating, but, you know, you're working with a lot of other people and, and, and it's the key board people you work with, key managing directors that we've worked with, very leading scientists who, who understand the research and how it should operate and and also other other growers because, you know, while we're involved in the research thing, you, you can't overlook the fact that a lot of the, the gains that have been made in agriculture have been the result of the innovation of farmers themselves. And if you look at the... Um, when the cropping systems changed dramatically into no-till farming, you know, that was a whole new learning experience. And, and, and organisations like W No-Till Farmers Association, equivalent in South Australia, I mean, they were groups of farmers who got together and tried to sort out all these issues. So, you know, and a lot of times farmers were ahead of the research in some respects, but what GRDC and others were able to do is then support those initiatives and, and help them uh, with their endeavours. And, and I think the, the other dimension I think that's important is the uh, development of the machinery. I mean, the machinery companies in the early days of direct seeding, you know, we, we had struggled just to actually physically plant the crop. You know, we just didn't have the equipment to do it. Now that's not an issue. I mean, the equipment that's available now can precisely seed into one pass operations and quite successfully. So there's been huge developments in the time I've been involved. And I think what I've always tried to do is, is, is make sure that the people who are involved in that had a and a line of communication with the researchers to, to help them do what they were doing themselves. I think it's fascinating, isn't it, that, that progression of agriculture. And just recently I was at a, at a conference and uh, the John Deere team were presenting. They kind of showed, I guess, the evolution of innovation in cropping. And then the next kind of part is around nearly like smart seeds. So I think we've like gone through that phase of no-till agriculture, precision agriculture, say version one. Then we went to, you know, I guess, controlled traffic, variable rate seeding, controlled plantings, et cetera. And now the, the next stage is around nearly like seed innovation and technology around that. It's insane. <laughs> and I think that's that's the whole point of uh, agriculture and research generally. I mean, it, it never stops. And I mean, you've got to keep investing in it. I think that's where the GRDC system, and I mean, there's the RDC system that was established by John Kerrin, who unfortunately passed away yesterday, but as the minister responsible there, I mean, John's view was that the best assistance for agriculture was by way of research and development and um, helped to establish in the system where if industries agreed to levy themselves, the government would match it. And that's a system that's endured for 30 years. I mean, it's certainly had its critics and it still has its critics because it's a big cost. I mean, growers are paying a lot of money for in levies. So you've got to make sure that that while it looks like a cost on the balance sheet on the PL, I mean, um, is there value there? You've got to be very careful in administrating that. And that's what the GRDC was set up to administer that that decision to form the levy. It's a heck of a responsibility. I'd love to know from your point of view, benefit of hindsight, how would you say like the, the system does work between marrying the piece around research, development, and then practical implementation for, I guess, the advancement of agriculture? Well, well I think it's been a Reasonably successful. I mean, when you when you look at the uh, footprint that GRDC has on the industry now, it's um, it, it's a major investor in in most of the research that matters in the grain industry. And I mean, that developed over time. Remember that in the early days when GRDC was formed, I mean, the vast majority of the agriculture was undertaken by state departments or universities. And over time, as everybody knows, it's been increasingly difficult to maintain the the budget into agriculture with the competing interests in modern society. 
So those funds are always under pressure. And what GRDC did was was replace a lot of that investment that was previously done for free, virtually, by, by governments. And so they've been able to pick that up. Now, had they not done that, I, th- I think the whole research effort would have been uh, underdone. And I think, you know, through my time with GRDC, I had opportunity to travel, talk to the Canadians and others, uh, and they always saw it as a very good system. And not all, all those contemporary countries have various systems of check-offs and government input, but they all uh, are quite envious of this, the RDC system in Australia. I think the fact that it's endured for so long is testament to the fact it's success. But look, it's always challenging to get it right and that delivering benefit and, and making sure that those investments produce returns rather than costs is always a challenge. And I think it, it never stops. Keeps people honest, that evolving challenge. <laughs> Yeah, well, it challenges people today. And I mean, the ADC is just looking at uh, new plans now. Um, there's been some some quite big changes in in, in the investment um, framework that we from when we started to where GRDC is today. And remember, and one of the big ones is, of course, with the deregulation of the grain industry, particularly the wheat industry. I mean, a lot of those industry good functions, AWB did them. I mean, they had control of the entire crop, so they did the market development work. They could tailor the crop to suit various markets. And they were very influential in the classification of varieties, et cetera, et cetera. So when, when that all disappeared, I mean, the, the industry had a period there where a lot of those things were, were not well attended to, you know, and, and GRDC rather moved into an area, you know, that was the thought behind funding AGIC, Australian Export Grains Innovation Centre, uh, and more latterly Grains Australia to look at those industry goods services. They previously set up Wheat Quality Australia to address classification. So I think GRDC taking a role in that beyond-the-farm gate research and looking very clearly at what, what's required in the markets, what sort of varieties we need, what what are the uh, what are people going to be eating and requiring in, in, in our, particularly Southeast Asia, which is the growth area closest to us. You know, taking a role in that has been something new that you know, probably in the early times of GRDC was more focused on on-farm production. And while that's still important, I think the work that we do in Grains Australia now in conjunction with AGIC and GTA is a is a worthwhile area because it's pretty competitive out there. We need to know that we've uh, we've got the information to pass back through our breeders and then through our classification system, addressing trade market access issues and allow the market to work. Then not a transactional role, but it's a it's an information role. And it is evolving quickly, isn't it? Consumer sentiments and everything else, community expectations. It's uh, it is a beast. Yeah. So. In your 30-odd-ish years involved with the GRDC, is there, is there a favourite memory that I guess you, yeah, that you call up or, or piece that you've been involved in? Uh, well, I think some of, the, some of the big ticket issues at the time were the, uh, the challenging of uh, financing wheat breeding in Australia. And at that time, we had seven wheat breeding programs in Australia. GRDC was taking an increasingly active role in supporting them. And after, after review and bringing the industry together, you know, it became pretty obvious that we could not support seven as a country, seven wheat breeding programs, to the point where they needed to be supported with new technologies and, and deliver. And then when you looked at the size of the crop, they probably didn't need them. Now, that was very challenging for the institutions involved because they were they put a lot of investment into them, most of them state organisations or universities. And they, they'd invested heavily in there. It was crop breeding generally was a... An important part of their operation. So to challenge that um, into new arrangements was 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 very difficult. But you know the approach we took, I think, is not 
trying to uh, rule what should happen, but bring people together and say, well, this is the situation, how do we address it? And the decision was made that, you know, the best outcome would be to commercialise wheat breeding. And here we are today, you know, we've got several very successful wheat breeding companies. So that was that was a big challenge. Um, the, other, the other one was the trial system. I mean, when you produce new varieties to get relevant data that's meaningful, I mean, there needs to be a trial program that has credibility and is set up. So the, the big, uh, there's a report done called trials and emissions, I think. And so now we have the national NVT crop system in, in place, which is, provides credible evidence so that varieties can be assessed and then classified according to the, what they can deliver. The other big challenge, I think, during my time that we were involved in to some degree was the introduction of GMO crops. As part of GRDC and others, we, we travelled to Canada in 1997, which was a year after the introduction of GM canola in Canada to assess the potential for it, I suppose. And I think we were all pretty excited at the prospect that these crops were going to deliver. But then the regulatory issues associated with it became forefront. And I think we all believed at the time that if we established and GRDC had input to this, when I say we, I mean, there's a lot of people involved, but GRDC certainly was strong input to the establishment of the OGTR, Office of Gene Technology Regulator. I mean, we all believe then, I think, that if, if we got really good uh, regulation in place and a process in place, we could address this. Unfortunately, uh, while the OGTR was set up quite successfully, state governments intervened for various reasons to implement bans on the introduction of crops. So we really saw that a decade before we were able to um, make use of that GM technology. Yeah, that occupied a lot of debate, a lot of discussion about the role of GM crops generally without getting into all the details of it. You know, we've tried to maintain a scientific approach to it, I think, and, and bring people along. So I suppose those, that is three examples, I think, Ollie, but there would be lots of others. Maybe hundreds, I reckon, and uh, <laughs> we'll probably sitting with the memories of so many people who would have commented and put you forward as part of the Seeds of Gold Award as well. Now, Terry, we're going to take a slight tangent. This is the hardest part of the podcast. No, it's actually the easiest and it's the most fun. There's no right answer. There's only your answers. We're calling it the Fast Five. Right Happy for you just to say the first thing that comes to mind. Right we'll see how we go. What, what's your favourite grain-based dish? Uh, grain-based dish? Red. Lovely. I always think of like, what would my answer be if someone asked me, sprung these on me? Are you going to share this bread with three people? Top three people you can have around for a meal? Who would they be? Anyone, anywhere, anytime? I can't answer that without thinking about it more. We, we can come back to it. What was your first ever job? My first ever job? Mm. Uh, well, the first job I had was uh, yeah, probably um, ploughing some new country or the Chamberlain Plough and an open tractor. I was going to say a dusty old job. <laughs> What's something you've got on your bucket list? Uh, I'd like to... Um, I'd like to travel to Canada. Whereabouts? Well, I've travelled to Canada, but I'll do it again. Whereabouts in Canada? I've got it on my bucket list too. Oh, no, I've only been in the grain thing in Saskatchewan and the grain provinces. I'd like to do a bit more of the uh, scenic stuff. Yeah. I worked in Davidson, Saskatchewan. I did it? Yeah. A few years ago. When I say a few years ago, I got seven, <laughs> eight. Broad, flat country, isn't it? I, I used to love it. People would say that you could watch your dog run away for days. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> Yeah, strange. All those just one mile by one mile blocks. Last time I was there was in winter, and uh, that, yeah, that was quite a different experience. Yeah, minus thirty or something. Yeah, it's insane. I think they just sit inside drinking whiskey or something. Is there <laughs> winter sport of choice? <laughs> What's a question you'd like me to ask a future guest on this podcast? Um, how, what What do they see the value of research? Good question. And if we come back, is there three people 
I'm going to say maybe your wife's one, but is there another couple of people you'd invite around for a feed? Yeah, probably my wife. I should invite my wife. Um, I find it really difficult because if I pick out three, I'm going to leave out how many, you know. Well, let's go. What would be some of the topics if you were to choose some dinner guests? What would be a topic that you're curious about or would want to explore? Uh, look, I'm, I'm still very involved in the live export industry. Good to have a discussion about that, see where people are, because they usually duck for cover when you mention that. Mm. It's quite challenging, actually, particularly on aircraft and that sort of thing. People say, what are you doing? So I'm in the live export business. They sort of go, <laughs> yeah. But um, yeah, it's good to sound them out. Yeah, but if, I, no, I find that really tough. <laughs> we'll let it slide. <laughs> because I, I just feel if I name three people, I'll leave out 10, so why not me? I don't think that's fair. Just dinner for two, you and your wife. Over a bit of bread. <laughs> Terry, thank you so much for coming and having a chat. Congratulations on your Seat of Gold Award. And I'm going to say on behalf of GRDC, I've got no credibility to say that, but just I think on behalf of everyone, thank you for your contribution to not just the grains industry, but Australian agriculture as well. It's been a heck of a career and we can't wait to see what's ahead. Well, thank you very much, Ollie. Uh, certainly I've had a long career in uh, both livestock and grains industry and uh, quite obviously it's coming to a, coming to an end pretty soon. Uh, at my age, but yeah, it's been interesting and I hope uh, my contribution has been a little worthwhile. Thanks for joining us for the GRDC In Conversation podcast. This series is a GRDC investment that's sharing the stories of the people who are living and breathing the Aussie grains industry. And aren't they just having the most incredible impact? Make sure you check out some of our other conversations and hit follow on your favourite podcast app to never miss an episode of GRDC In Conversation or any of the GRDC podcast episodes. See ya.